beloved congregation of the Lord. It is a terrible thing to contemplate how the most precious truths of the gospel of salvation, when twisted and distorted, can be turned into soul-damning errors. And when I would think about that, the, the prospect of things that are true being distorted in order to lead people to destruction, I would think of various perversions of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. We know, what, we know I trust, if we've been instructed in the central truths of the scripture, that there is not one child of God which will ultimately be lost. That all those who have believed upon the name of Jesus Christ unto salvation, that not one of them can be snatched from Christ's mighty hand. And yet there is a version of this, and perhaps common in some of the evangelical churches that are more Arminian in character, but also perhaps not entirely foreign from the Reformed churches, whereby this becomes badly distorted. You would think, for example, of something as superficial as the statement, once saved, always saved. And it may sound a bit similar. It may sound as though that is getting at what we mean when we confess the perseverance of the saints. But what it often boils down to is something like this. Well, if someone would believe upon Jesus Christ, no matter whether they subsequently continue in that profession, no matter whether there is the marks of saving grace and love and repentance and obedience that flow from a true faith, no matter even if they ultimately discard the faith they once professed, they are secure. They are saved. And so I, I remember in one case growing up, there was a man who never once uttered uh, um, any interest in the Lord Jesus, but it was expressed, well, maybe at some point or other he, he had faith. And, and so it becomes just a matter of getting your ticket punched, getting in your queue, and then you'll you'll surely get to the desired destination. And such is not at all what the gospel teaches. And so when we would look at the example of someone like David, that great man of faith, and we would see how far it was that he fell to the depths of, it seemed, apostasy. How it was he was able to live in unrepentant sin such to the point where he murdered his closest friend or one of his close friends and took his wife as his own and committed the most abominable of sins for so long and yet seemed as he was a true believer as it, it turned out. For the Lord restored him in time. There was a marvelous work of God's grace, bringing him back to the faith which he had come to deny. But when we see such things as these congregation, we are reminded that the very same work of grace, which is brought in a soul, bringing them into 
a state of salvation is also required in preserving them all the way to the end. And so, where there is the marks of apostasy, where there is a turning away from God's grace and the faith of the gospel, there is no reason for complacency or comfort. Indeed, it ought to fill us with terror if we would see the marks of rejecting Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I think if we would think rightly about these things, about the absolute necessity of one who has true faith, persevering in that faith to the end, we would see exactly what is at stake in this story of the disciple named Thomas. Perhaps we're very familiar with this story, but as I I wrestled with it and and prayed over it and and considered it, I I came to really see that, that this is a story that ought to astonish us and fill us with wonder. That a man who in many ways, it seems, was just as far gone as David was yet restored in the marvelous working of God's grace towards him. And I hope that we would profit from a careful consideration of verses 24 to 29 of John's 20th chapter. Let us write over this sermon the title, The Restoration of Thomas. The Restoration of Thomas. With the Lord's help, we will consider first the need for this restoration, the means of this restoration, and the results of this restoration. The need, the means, the results. What we have in this story is one who stands in very great need of being restored to the faith. Look with me in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And if you're not with us this morning, we consider, did we not, that wonderful encounter with the risen Christ that ten of Christ's disciples experienced. There they were in subjection to um, the wishes of the Lord Jesus on the Lord's day in fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears to them. He announces his peace unto them. He shows them his wounds, and he proclaims to them the mission that he has called them to. And if you would rightly think about that encounter and all, what all was going on, I think there's every reason to think that what they were doing on that first Resurrection Sunday was nothing less than an act of obedience to what the Lord Jesus was ultimately requiring of them. If you would compare this, for example, with what you see in chapter 16 of this gospel, you have something very striking which Jesus told them in the final hours before his arrest. He said in chapter 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. 
preparing them for the ghastly sight of his crucifixion and the the terrors that would befall them and the great sorrows and griefs that would be attended with him being taken from their midst. But then down in, in verse 22, and ye know now therefore And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. So I say when they were gathered together, there is every reason to think that they perhaps were thinking on these things, that the Lord Jesus would come to them again. So what better place to be than gathered together among those to whom that promise had been given. And so I say it is a very striking thing that Thomas was absent from that group. And we ought to be careful here. I I cannot say emphatically and most definitely that he did not have a valid reason for being absent from the gathered people of God. It it could perhaps be that that was the case. But when we, we compare the whole accounting of things and when we, we look at how it is put there just so starkly, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. It does not just, just so seem that that was where he ought to have been. That was his place and his station, and yet he was not there. Regardless of whether he had a valid excuse, we can certainly say that he certainly missed something so precious in not being among the the gathered people of God on that occasion. He missed that wonderful sight of the risen Lord of glory. He missed the sight of those wounds in his palms and in his side. He missed those blessed words that pass from his lips, peace be unto you. He missed it all. And who can say, who can say what one misses when one willingly and without good excuse absents himself or herself from the gathered people of God? I hazard to say that it would fill us with sorrow if we would rightly contemplate those occasions where we had the opportunity to be among the Lord's people at the point of gathered worship and without a valid reason absented ourselves. A terrifying prospect to think that the Lord Jesus is most clearly at work among his gathered people where the means are administered, the preaching of God is in the midst. And you have that solemn promise, wherever wherever even one or two are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And proved true in this case, certainly, and also throughout the ages since, that God is pleased to bring tokens of love and favor and salvation when his people, in obedience to his command, do not forsake the gathering together. But you are here, you are here in the midst of the Lord's people. You are here in obedience to Christ. Shall we therefore say that you have attained unto the high watermark of spirituality? Such is the case in this sad, depraved age that many think so. Not to think that just being in a pew or in a seat where the word of God is administered, that that you have not absented yourself from the opportunity for the Lord's blessing. 
But is it really so? Must we not say with mourning that there are those people who come to the place of God's meeting place through his son, and yet though they're there in the body, they might as well be a million miles away in spirit. Coming to a gathering of the Lord's people without any preparation or prayer for the Lord to be at work. Coming into a place of worship, distracting ourselves with all the cares and worries of our secular and worldly occupations and callings. Even indulging in sinful and heinous thoughts when Christ himself is present in the preaching of the word. Such as these as well, though they may be in present, still are in this dangerous place of Thomas. And for Thomas, it proved not only that he was denied a blessing, but it proved a very disastrous calamity for his spiritual well-being. You see, this man, he was of a disposition that was maybe a little bit more down and dour than the average disciple. Perhaps you remember that occasion when he was uh, traveling with the Lord Jesus to the tomb of Lazarus, and there was maybe some danger from the Lord's enemies. And so uh, this man, he sort of said with them, let's go and die with him. So certainly a, a statement of his faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus, but it gives you a sort of taste for his character. He's, he's someone who maybe doesn't always see the, the rosy side of things, but maybe leans a little bit more into the darker aspects of the world and, and life. And perhaps partly owing to this personality type, when it was the case that the Lord Jesus Christ was wretched from him and the other disciples, when he with the others forsook the Lord Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to save his own hide, and when the very worst of all happened, he received word that his most beloved Savior had been crucified in the place of a common criminal and that the love of his life had indeed been been nailed to that accursed tree, that a, a spear been thrust through his side, then it seems as though he had given up on life itself. Forgetting all the things that he had been taught and carefully instructed from the Lord Jesus, saying that he would surely return to him, in a moment, all of his hopes were dashed, and he simply gave up entirely. Note what he, he says here. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Have you heard someone in bold defiance of your testimony of the Lord's grace and favor look you squarely in the face and say words to that effect, I will not. I will not believe. It was not as though people did not prevail 
seek to prevail with him and to plead with him and say, did you not know, Thomas, that he is risen? We saw him with our very eyes. We heard his blessed words. Everything is true that he ever taught us, Thomas. It is not the end, the cross. No, there is a blessed empty tomb. There is salvation in this name of Jesus. Don't give up now. Not after all these years of walking with him and, and, and believing upon his name. Don't turn in the towel now, Thomas. But Thomas, it seems, was set. Perhaps sometimes we can somewhat relate to that. Sometimes if a particular disaster or crisis strikes us, it can hit our emotional and, and, and spiritual well-being in a particular way, driving us into a place of such deep depression that even the, the news that is good and favorable that might seek to bring us out of that condition, it is seen as, as just another enemy to be resisted. And so we become the enemies of even our own souls. We, we resist those who sometimes would treat, seek to bring us back to sanity, to favor and, and, and belief with the Lord Jesus. I think there's also this Implication is as well. There was perhaps some resentment on Thomas's part that through his own sin that he should have been denied this this dramatic experience of seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and through his own fault been denied that that infallible proof. It, it seems as though he this served to even drive her deeper and deeper in this trajectory of apostasy. Except the Lord Jesus would do exactly that, but, but not even that. If I would even see him, that would not be enough. I must put my finger into the holes of his hands, thrust my hand into his side. And so it can sometimes be the case that those who are, are seeing something of the truth of Christ, seeing something of, of his claims upon us, they hear perhaps of this one or that one who received a dramatic conversion experience, a dramatic experience of God's grace. And so the, the, temptation, the temptation is at that point to dig in our heels, to cross our arms and say, if the Lord would not deal with me in this way, that I prescribe and I lay out, well, then I have an excuse for my unbelief. I have an excuse for resisting his overtures of mercy and his commands to believe. Such it is that the terrible sin of unbelief is excused by a hardened conscience. A terrifying thing to contemplate, congregation. Look at this. Look at this soul in such a wretched condition, headed towards apostasy, headed, humanly speaking, towards eternal destruction. And what can recover this soul? Only what we see in this wonderful recovery that the Lord Jesus wrought. What are the means of this recovery? Well, in the first place, we can say that the means that were used were the pleadings of the Lord's people. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus and so on. A remarkable 
thing this. Sometimes when we are pleading with someone, and maybe not the first or the second or the third or even the fifth or the tenth time, there has been resistance to our evangelism. And we've laid out, it's so clear in the scriptures, it's, it's so clear from the testimony of church history, it's so clear from this example or that case or, or even your own words and your own reckonings that there is life in none other but the name of Jesus Christ. And we share that with those whom we love more than life itself, those for whom we would just as soon have our names blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. And that they be denied that place in the kingdom of Christ and of salvation. And yet it can grow wearisome, it can grow tiresome, we can grow bitter. And say, surely it does no good to continue pleading for the souls of those too hardened to even know where salvation lies. And bit by bit, even our prayers begin to falter. We begin to say, well, that one is a lost cause. No good praying for that one. But these did not think so. Though Thomas had said that he would not believe unless this condition were met and that condition were met, seeking to legislate for God what was required of him, they prevailed. And they said, will you not come with us in the next Lord's Day. And a striking thing that they were intent on gathering on the first day of the week once more, on Sunday, as we say. They were persuaded, it appears, that there was something about that first day of the week which the Lord Jesus had especially set apart through his resurrection. And so they said, surely if the Lord Jesus would come first time with that miraculous power, perhaps if we would to do the same thing on the anniversary of, of one week and we would gather together and plead for his mercy might not he deem fit to return again and to restore this fallen brother unto the faith such was their reasoning and it was used of God's grace to restore one who was in danger of apostasy I'm reminded at this point, I think it's the Marines that have the motto, no man left behind. And would it were so that the congregations of the Lord were also known by such a motto, when one is down and out, when one has, appears has given up and absented himself from the stated worship or otherwise seeming to reject even the overtures of mercy, that there would be those who in love and persistence and prayer and in steadfastness seek to restore them. Shall we leave behind even one who so falls? God forbid. Let us strive for the souls of those who would seek to leave themselves behind. But notice as well, in the means of this was a great act of compassion on the Lord Jesus. You know, where someone would commit this bold act of really willful defiance against the Lord of glory himself and say, except that the Lord Jesus does this and that and the other thing, I will never believe. Surely the Lord Jesus would have been well justified and say, well, on your way then. I'll have no time for those who would openly disrespect me in that way. Those who are so high and mighty and proud and they will not humble themselves under the testimony of my gospel. 
But the Lord Jesus, in this case, committed himself to the singular act of grace, not only the first time, but the second time, returning for the straying, straggling sheep committed to his own destruction. He appeared once again, a second miraculous power in the space of one week, a miraculous act whereby without any of the doors being opened, Jesus is in the midst of them, exactly as before. And as his tone or his words change, whereas before it was peace be unto you, is it going to be this time a word of rebuke? And it's like, how dare you, Thomas? But no, it's exactly the same message. Exactly the same for this one who in bold defiance had sinned to his own, his own apostasy. He says, peace be unto you. And it reminds us, does it not, congregation, that in the bowels of Christ's compassion, there is no respect of persons. You could be the most heinous and foul sinner. You could have sinned not only against the law, but against grace and the gospel and, and his own person. You could be one who even cursed the name of Jesus Christ. And yet he, in his infinite compassion, can stoop down and deal with a sinner like that astonishing things and not only that but precisely according to his own ridiculous requirements then saith he to thomas reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing Reminded on some occasions when, when I was a child and I was behaving in a particularly naughty, bratty way, I'd be nagging and nagging my parents for a particular thing until sometimes uh, I would just be in uh, such a state that my parents would just throw up their hands and say, fine, have it your way, giving me what I wanted, but in that, that very act revealing to me how sinful and wicked I was being and disrespecting them in that way. So it is also here. In this case, what this, this man needed to really bring him to the end of himself, to bring him to a place of conviction, was Christ giving him what he wanted. That was more than anyone else needed. No one else needed to actually touch, his thing, touch the hole in his, in, his, uh, in his hand and thrust their hand into his side to believe. But for this one, he said, nothing else will do. And so Jesus condescends to say, such may it be the case. Put in your finger right here, Thomas. If that's really what it's going to take for you to take me at my word, then do it now. You want to see the, the hole in my side, Thomas? Put your hand right, right in there. Do it right here. And then the words of, of real rebuke that come at the end. Be not faithless, but believing. He's saying you are playing the part of the infidel, Thomas. The unbeliever, the faithless one. One who is without the trust that I am due. Do not be in that condition, but believe. Believe in me. And that is the, the case, congregation. These things must come home to you if you are in a state of unbelief today. 
if you are harboring and festering doubts concerning the wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ, if you are content to say, unless this or that or the other thing happens, I'm going to remain in my unbelief, then you need the Lord Jesus to seal this message to you personally today. Do not be faithless, but believe. Consider congregation, what a dreadful condition is the one who lives in a state of unbelief. This one hears the Lord Jesus say unto them, Come unto me and receive life, receive salvation, receive my peace and my joy and salvation. And they say, Not good enough. Not good enough that you should come unto me, Christ, and speak words of mercy and grace and salvation. It simply won't do. And so we... We indulge in the passing pleasures of sin for a season. We live in a state of enmity towards God and against our very souls. And we persist in that wretched condition. And some, it is to be feared, persist and persist and persist in hardening themselves against the overtures of grace until they perish to their everlasting destruction. And what of those like Thomas, in willful defiance, get themselves to the place where they are willing to even say, I will not believe in him. And life for the apostate is one of, of utter dread. For having tasted of the heavenly gift to then have trodden the very Son of God in his blood underfoot, it is to invite the very worst of judgments that awaits those who depart from us, for they were never of us. And, O congregation, let not one of you be in this condition. Do not be faithless, but believe. Believe upon the name of the Son of God. Recognize with Thomas that you are sinning. There is no excuse for going on in unbelief where Jesus Christ has spoken to you plainly and strictly and clearly. That there is life in his name. That there is forgiveness with him. That there is peace that passes all understanding for those who will humble themselves and receive his free gift. Wonderful thing, conviction. If we would rightly see that we have been the fool and that we have been denying ourselves the infinite pleasures of the gospel, better to see that plainly now and to see what a fool you have been and to repent today, believing on Jesus Christ, than wait until the final moments of life when it is too late. What blessing and wonder. Here is God's grace in restoring this Thomas. These are the means that he used. But what are the results of this restoration? Well, the first thing to be noted is a very remarkable confession. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. As though here is one who suddenly come to himself as though waking from a dreadful nightmare seeing how everything that he was clamoring for was utterly needless. You notice how it never once says that he actually went through with it. It doesn't say that he actually extended that hand and and touched the Lord Jesus' wounds or thrust his hand into his side. It seems that the Lord's rebuke was enough for him. 
And out of his mouth proceeds this confession. What is it he's saying? My Lord and my God. Where we would speak of Christ as Lord, I think this is a title that especially designates his role as mediator. This is the sense in which the Apostle Peter uses the title Kurios, or Lord, in Acts 2, verse 36, where he said, God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Christ and Lord. So the son, he was made to be Christ. He was made to be Lord. He was made to play this role and, and, and to exercise this title and this wonderful mission as the God-man mediator, the one who would stand between a hell-deserving people and a, and a righteous God and bring the two into a state of peace and harmony and reconciliation. And what's especially held forth here is that as the Lord, as the mediator, he exercises a sovereign rule over his kingdom of grace and love. He is the Lord. And so Jesus is recognized here in this confession as the mediator. But you notice it goes higher than that, this confession. Indeed, many a confession has been uttered in this wonderful gospel. There is the confession of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Or that of, of Peter. We know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But did any ascend higher than what Thomas says here? My Lord and my God. It was left to Thomas. This one who went down in history as the doubter, yet has this excellent faith which ascends high to where he sees that this very person standing before him, bearing the marks of crucifixion and pain on the cross, is the very creator of the ends of the earth. Not that there is a confusion in the persons of the Trinity, but a recognition that the Son of God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, they possess the one undivided being of God in, in perfection. All of the divine wisdom and glory and power and immensity, it belongs to this one, the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is God blessed forever. Amen. This is the one who has all the perfections of deity and is indeed the mighty God. And this is where saving faith rests, congregation. If we had not a divine Savior and mediator, then our professions to salvation would be worthless. All those so-called churches which would deny the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrate themselves to be synagogues of Satan. And your own faith, it will never avail towards any good unless you would see that in this Savior is not only the perfection of humanity, but all the infinite glory of deity, God and man in one undivided person. And that indeed is high. But I think the very greatest thing about this faith as it soars here before us is that little word, my. My Lord and my God. And that is not always the case with the Lord's people, that they can say those words. 
And that first motion of the heart towards the Savior, maybe the confession of true saving faith is something like this. I am a hell-deserving sinner, and I flee unto the name of Jesus Christ. I flee to him for refuge, because there is salvation in him, and I take him as my own. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. But can we ever think that the Lord Jesus is content with that? Should the Lord Jesus save a soul from hell and be content to merely have the the faith that takes refuge in his name? Or are we to say that the Lord Jesus is more pleased with doubt than faith? Or are we to say that he is content for his children never to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? No. The course of faith. And what pleases the Lord is that refuge taking faith. It takes strength from the promises of God and it blossoms into an assured hope where we can say with a confident confession, my Lord, my God. Lord Jesus never rebuked Thomas for making this confession. You notice up until that point, at the very brink of apostasy, about to fall away from the faith altogether, and yet he's able to attain to this, my Lord and my God, because it was a true testimony of what the Lord had done for him and who the Lord Jesus was to him. In congregation, this this is what every child of God can experience as well. There is nothing lacking in Jesus that you should not be able to say, my Lord and my God. There is nothing dishonoring in this, that the child of God would be able to have this strong, assured confidence in him. If it is the case that we cannot attain to this, is it not because that we are living in in some measure of rebellion against him? Things are not well. He has a controversy with us. There is something we've not yet yielded unto him. But where there is that sweet surrender, committing our life and our heart and our all unto his safekeeping, can we not say this with the same confidence, my Lord and my God? Not because of of ourselves, but because of who he is to his people. All the perfections of deity, all the, the wondrous authority as Lord, all the suffering and, uh, and death and hell that he endured in the place of his, of his people. And there he is as the Lord of love. And child, you not, you not embrace him in this precise way. This is the result of this restoration congregation, a confession. But likewise, we have before us an example, an example And you notice what Jesus says here in verse 29. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Oh, congregation, I've read this story many times in my life, and I wonder if I've ever understood it in the way I have in preparation for this message. Because time and time again, when I hear what the Lord Jesus did for Thomas, I am prone to envy Thomas. 
Because how often would I like to have dictated to the Lord Jesus exactly this is how it should go for me. This is what you should, uh, you should have wrought in my life. This is what you should have revealed to me. This is how it should go with me. And, and uh, time and time I find that the Lord Jesus does not work in that way. And so it would seem that a great blessing was given to Thomas. He, he asked for something this great, and the Lord Jesus gave it all to him, and he was brought to this place of confession. But what Jesus says so plainly is that, yes, indeed, you've received a singular blessing, but how much more blessed are those who but hearing my gospel, hearing my word, yet believe without laying eyes upon me. A greater blessing is yours, believer. Because though you, you have your doubts, though you have your flaws, though you have, have your terrible shortcomings that bring reproach to the name of Christ, yet you have found that in his gospel there is a sure anchor for your soul. Yet you have found that in Jesus Christ there is a stable rock on which you may rest your feet. Yet you have found that where the Lord Jesus speaks, he speaks true. For here is the word of one who cannot lie. And you found it to be so that the faith that we are commanded and enjoined, while not contrary to sound reason and that which is truly, um, objectively true, Yet it does attain to a higher and a deeper and a greater truth than our puny minds could have understood. For this faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. The people of God walk by faith and not by sight because this is the way that brings glory to the name of Christ and brings us to a place of dependence upon him whereby he may receive all the glory. And what a blessing it is to take Jesus at his word, to trust and obey him, to surrender to him as Lord and God, and indeed my Lord and my God, and to find him to be a faithful Savior. My friend, take that step even today. Receive Jesus Christ as he comes to you in his word. And he says, blessed are those who believe on me. You notice how... This story ends with the words of the Apostle John. And many other things, many other signs truly to Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There'd be one here who's been waiting for a glorious sign that the Lord Jesus would do something special for you before you would simply take him at his word. Would you not hear the voice of Christ speaking to you today and saying, no, as it turns out, my word actually is enough. Would you receive blessing? Would you receive life? Close with me today. Embrace me in faith. Be not unbelieving be not faithless but believe